everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our podcast series on Shmot focuses on identity and nationality formation. We're going to try and address the big biblical themes of slavery, redemption, society building, and commitment to a binding code of law, as well as explore together with our guests how we can anchor these big ideas in our modern lives. This week's episode is dedicated in memory of Lily Weil. It was around Lily's dining room table that Rabbanit Malkabina first taught a Talmud Shir to women and is what provided the inspiration for Matan's creation. Lily was a woman of grace and kindness, wisdom, and good deeds. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. Parshat Bo opens with the final three plagues, locusts, darkness, and the death of the firstborns, and includes all the formative instructions for the moment of Exodus, the Pesach sacrifice, the redemption of the animal and human firstborn, and how this mitzvah intertwines with the plague of the firstborn. The Parsha is unusually occupied with setting the tone for how Pesach will be remembered in the future. It spends less time recording the events as they happen and much more detailing how they should be commemorated. This will be the topic of today's conversation. Today, I'm pleased to welcome back a returning podcast guest, Dr. Ayelet Hoffman Libson, who appeared in our first series on women and their Torah journey, episode seven, and joined me for episode 37 on Parshat Vehira last year, where we spoke about Moshe as lawmaker and lawbreaker. Ayelet taught at Matan for over a decade and is a graduate of its Advanced Talmud Institute. She is currently a senior lecturer at the School of Law at Reichman University. She is the author of Law and Self-Knowledge in the Talmud, which came out in 2018. Ayelet, it is a pleasure to have you back. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. We're speaking almost around the exact same part we spoke about last year, so I also thought that that was, that was a funny a funny coincidence. So bring us into this week's Parsha. It's a Parsha that sort of hangs out in the present, in the future. It goes back and forth between them. And I love to explore that the nexus of those events with you today. This Parsha really brings the story of the 10 plagues to a climax. In last week's Parsha, we spoke about the first seven plagues, and this Parsha leads us into the last three plagues, as you mentioned, and brings us to the very dramatic story of the plague of the firstborn. Now, what's interesting is that this Parsha is also the Parsha where we first have a discussion, a serious discussion of law for the first time in the Torah. And everyone knows the very famous first Rashi on the Torah, where Rashi cites a Midrash, where Rabbi Yitzchak says the Torah actually should have started from Parshat Bo, right? From the laws of the Pesach, where these are the first laws that the Torah gives us. So that, that Midrash by Rabbi Yitzchak is actually presenting an idea or a question um, which suggests that the Torah is a book of law, that that's its primary goal. But of course, the answer that's given there in the Midrash and that Rashi cites is that it's not only a book of law. There's also a purpose to the narrative that's given throughout all of the book of Genesis. Um, and I think that this parasha really embodies that, uh, that dichotomy or that um, tension between law and narrative 
Because what we see in our parasha is that actually the parasha goes back and forth, back and forth, between law and narrative. That it's talking about the, the story of the ten plagues and you know, almost climaxing with the exodus from Egypt. Um, and at the same time, it's also talking about the laws and what, what are the laws that need to take place at that moment in Mitzrayim, and also what are the laws that are going to be to become part of Jewish ritual for eternity. I'll also just add that this is a tension that exists in many places. It's just extremely highlighted in next week's Parsha. If you think back to an example we actually spoke about in a previous episode about the Gid HaNasheh, okay? Mm-hmm. You have a narrative there where Yaakov fights this Ish and he comes out limping. And then we have a Pasuk which says, and this is why we don't eat the Gid HaNasheh. That's a very small version of where we'll see the intertwining of law and narrative. Uh, in general, this is a big question in scholarship how to understand the intertwining. Sometimes we also have laws and narratives which are in dialogue with each other, even though they're not appearing in the same place. Here, it's so unique because they're literally, they're right next to each other, placed in the prakim. But we have other cases where, I don't know, attempted fratricide in Sefer Breshit, and then law is about fratricide in the Book of Dorim. And so in those cases, we we purposefully line up those texts to see what the relationship is between them. Sometimes the actual circumstance of narrative provides a much broader context than the law can provide. Uh, sometimes the law clearly draws from the language of those cases of narrative. So this is a whole field in and of itself. I'll also just add anybody interested in this topic, Pamela Barmash has a, a great book about it. The first, I believe, to really pioneer this kind of research in the modern academic setting was uh, was David Daub, if I'm saying his name correctly. Um, it's Daub. Daub. Yes, there's an E at the end. I just yeah. never knew what to do with it. So... <laughs> So this is these are these are really important topics, but in our parsha, it's just you can't avoid it because they're placed up against each other. So we're sort of constantly trying to figure out what's borrowing from what, what's feeding off of what, and I'm sure we'll we'll get more into that in today's conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we look at the structure of the parasha, so um, chapter eleven des- describes Hashem's instructions to Moshe about the about the firstborn plague. Um, and then Moshe indeed delivers those instructions to the people, or so it seems. Um, but then the narrative stops. And for the beginning of, for the first 20 psukim of chapter 12, then we have the laws, we have a legal section. And then in verse 21, the narrative continues with Moshe's instructions to the people of Israel to cover their doorposts with blood so as to... Um, protect themselves. And then we hear the story of the plague of the firstborn and how the Egyptians respond. And then if we look at what's going on in the interim, what happens in that break between the two parts of the narrative, we have that first legal section. This section describes the laws of Korban Pesach, but the legal section is also truncated, right? So the, the legal section is also broken up into two parts, So verse 21 continues with the narrative, and then the legal section is picked up again towards the end of the chapter in verse 43 with the laws starting with Zot Chukat HaPesach. These are the laws of the Pesach, which focus on who can participate in the Korban Pesach, um, who's in and who's out, right? You have to be be, uh, circumcised, 
um, slaves and Gerim can participate, but they have to be in some way part of the community of Israel. So actually what we see here in these two chapters is a structure of narrative law, narrative law, going really very, very strongly back and forth. And as you say, this is much more of a dramatic juxtaposition than in other places in the Torah, which really raises the question of, you know, why, why is this happening here? And also, I think, you know, based on that famous first Rashi, which is kind of pointing to this parasha as the first developed mode of law, it's also telling us something significant about law in general in the Tanakh, that, you know, you can't, there is no such thing as just a law book. Law always comes in the context of narratives, and narratives are really what what provide the theology, what provide the culture, what provide the values and the context in which you can understand the law. Law doesn't law never stands on its own. And in contrast to modern law books, which do try to kind of, you know, sterilize law and say, okay, this is the law, we're taking it out of all context. You can open up this book and know exactly what the law is. The Torah is very upfront about showing us you have to understand law in a much broader context. Right, that provides meaning. It also maybe provides impetus for keeping it <laughs> to a certain degree. Right. But I think that that's a really, really important point, uh, that especially at the beginning of where law is given, you know, in a few prakim, it'll be given in a in a theophany, it'll be given in a context of a spiritual experience, right? Now, this, our everyday experience of keeping law, does it reflect that spiritual experience? No, of course not. But there's something you're saying in like the DNA of giving the law initially in that context, which imbues it with a much deeper dimension than just this is what you're supposed to do. Right. And of course, Chet Egel immediately afterwards also shows us how hard it is to keep yeah. that law, right? That it's not something that's easy. It's a challenge. It's something that you have to accept the suppositions and you have to really keep that theophany in mind all the time because otherwise you're going to, be, you're going to get let go of the law very quickly. Yeah. So what are some of the themes that come up in these, in these laws that we're learning? So the laws are really about the Pesach, um, and, you know, how, how to bring the Korban Pesach. And what I think is very interesting here is that we see very strongly the idea of the family and even more specifically, the home. The word bait is one of the most prevalent words in this parasha. Um, it appears in chapter 12, 18 times. Wow. And interestingly, I think it's also really contrasting two different ideas of the bait, because twice the word bait appears in the phrase bait avadim, so it's describing mitzrayim. The house of bondage. Right, and all the other times it's discussing basically uh, the korban pesach, and it's talking either about the home as a physical structure of the bnei Israel, or as a family, bait avot. So I think that the, the, both the legal and the narrative portion here are focusing, honing in on that word bait, the home, as a way of contrasting two different ideas of the home, that there's the Egyptian idea of the home and there's the Israelite idea of the home, the, the home of Bnei Israel. And that's something that's you know, recurrent throughout this parasha. Interestingly, the 
name Paro means the etymology of the name Paro is the great house. So it's not just, you know, by coincidence that the Torah is really focusing on this word. It's trying, as Bnei Israel are about to leave the place that has been their home for hundreds of years, the Torah is saying, you know, there's the Egyptian idea of what is a home and what is a great home, and that's a certain set of values. And now we're going to juxtapose what is the Jewish home, right? What is the home of Bnei Israel? I think this also recalls uh, the conversation we had last week with uh, Dr. L. Ziegler, where she also mentioned that Paro means uh, means great house. I think that one of the things that's being sort of toppled over here is this idea of the hierarchy. Because if Paro is sort of the head of the house, and he's the king who is also the god, here we have, I would say, a relatively democratic concept where every home, right, is its own kingdom, essentially. And every home has to perform these rituals. And so that, you know, among, we've, you know, discussed briefly in previous episode about how all the plagues sort of topple over a lot of the Egyptian theology. This is another one of those pieces where we're going to say, I don't need the Egyptian great house. We're all going to create that house. And we have a responsibility and even an obligation to have our individual homes be that great house. We can't just leave it to the leader. We have to all be responsible for the creation of that institution. Absolutely, right. We don't see like Moshe saying, okay, I'm going to instate myself as a replacement to Paro. He barely talks about himself in this Parsha. By the way, this is the precedent for the fact that he doesn't appear in the Haggadah. Mm -hmm. I don't remember where I've read that, but in this Parsha, he passes things on. He is nowhere near the centerpiece of anything that goes on, and that has to be nothing less than deliberate. He's here to midwife God's mission in the world and to bring us out, but he's nowhere near replacing Paro, right? If anything, we know that God will ultimately ultimately replace Paro, will be his servants, but Moshe keeps himself utterly in the background. And I think that there's also something that's very empowering about that when you think about Parashat Bo coming before Parashat Beshalach, because, I mean, if you think about, you know, all the plagues that have been going on, the darkness, the, the various plagues that have been, you know, really causing a lot of chaos, and you could imagine the anger that's boiling up amongst the Egyptians and the Israelites just, you know, cowering in their homes, boarding up the doors, you know, worried about what's going on. And here the Torah is giving them something to do. It's giving them a ritual. It's giving them, you know, the power to actually celebrate even before they leave in a way that is building them up from slaves to free people who can take control and power over their own destiny. Yeah, I think that's going to be a running question throughout these chapters of how we sort of go about making that transition. And the first one you're saying is, well, I'm going to make you all in charge of your own household. I'm going to give you all responsibilities and instructions. You're going to have to, you're going to have to do them now, even this very tense moment before we're going to leave, you're going to have to really prepare and execute and involve everybody in your household. And that already is removing them from that subject mentality to being the arbiters of their own destiny to being their own the subjects of of their own lives essentially which i think is also you know a very interesting point about about religious law right that that rather than being slaves to a human master who's telling them what to do by giving the people of israel law hashem is actually saying to them you're set free from other people 
And now you are avadai, right? You're my slaves. You're not the slaves of another person. And that actually manifests by taking care of your own law, of taking care of your destiny, of your lives, of your homes, through performing the law. So the Torah emphasizes the importance of the bait, of the home, for the Korban Pesach. And we really see the repetition of the phrase bait again and again. So each bait avot, each family, takes one lamb. The blood of the lamb is placed on the doorposts of the house. Ala batim, asher bahem. God will see the blood, which will be a sign on the homes. dam lachem leot al habatim asher sham. And the sacrifice has to be eaten in one home. So we see here those two senses of the word bait, both as the physical structure and as the bait avot, the family. So there's a very, the experience is kind of uniting the family, each family in their own home, um, bringing the sacrifice together and putting the blood on the doorposts together. At the same time, the narrative is also cognizant of what's occurring inside the homes of the Egyptians, right? Because as when we go back from the law to the narrative, and the narrative is discussing the plague of the firstborns, then the verse says, right? There was a great cry that went out in Egypt because there was no home in which there was um, no one who, who was dead. So I think that there's the, the narrative is kind of or going the going back and forth between the narrative and law is actually suggesting a kind of a split screen scene which is contrasting the homes of Bnei Israel with the homes of the Egyptians. And there's actually a fascinating midrash on the verse in Tehilim Lemakem Mitzrayim Bivchorehem which picks up on this contrast. So the midrash says when God told Moshe to announce that Makat Bechorot was going to be coming and that at midnight all the firstborns would die, then the firstborns of Egypt panicked because they had seen that all the other plagues that had been announced had indeed come true. So they went to their fathers and they said to them, everything Moshe said to us came true. Don't you want us to live? Come on, let's let these Hebrews go. Otherwise, we'll die. And the fathers replied and said, no, even if all of Egypt will die, we're not going to let the Israelites go. So the Bechorot, the firstborns, didn't give up. They're fighting for their lives. So they went to Paro and they said to him, they screamed to him and they said, please let the people go because we're going to die, and you're going to have a terrible thing will happen to your family too. But Paro wouldn't agree either. And so the Bechorot, because they were so frustrated and they wanted to release the people of Israel, they each took their swords and killed their own fathers. And that's why the verse says, mitzrayim that it's not just, the Pasuk doesn't say God killed the firstborns of Egypt, but he killed Egypt by its firstborns. So that's how the Midrash interprets this pasuk. 
So the Midrash is, first of all, showing us the panic in the homes of, of the Egyptians right before this plague. But it's also showing us something, a window into the culture of Egypt, where, first of all, they're so intent on keeping their slaves that they're even willing to sacrifice their own families for, so as not to let go of, uh, of Bnei Israel, and that the children are lifting up their swords at the parents, right? That there's, there's a complete opposite of everything that the Torah offers about about harmony within the, within the home. You know, it's really like a, a, an antithesis of everything that we think a, a good and harmonious home should be. You know, I'll just bring in here a quote from, uh, from Leon Cass's commentary on the book of Shmot. I've, I've mentioned it before. Uh, well, I mentioned him in Breshid, and so I'll continue to mention him in Shmot until he comes out with books, uh, commentaries <laughs> later on for the Torah. But he says something that I think weaves together both the morality that we're trying to create right now in this moment in the Jewish home versus the morality that's reflected certainly by the Midrash that you just, uh, that you just quoted he says, at the same time, the household principle is being subordinated to the communal principle and to divine service, meaning we have this bite, but the bite does not exist just as the individual bite of each Israelite home. It's part of this broader process, in part to acknowledge and remedy the evils that lurk in the uninstructed human family, the dangers of patricide, infanticide, and especially fratricide. Thus, the family offering tacitly acknowledges the impulse within families to bloody their own nest. That's that sort of comes up for me exactly when you bring in that midrash, an impulse that must and will be redirected and tamed. It may also serve as belated symbolic penance for the intended fratricide that brought Israel into Egypt in the first place. The story of Joseph and his murderous brothers who brought his coat stained with the blood of a goat to their father Jacob as phony evidence that a wild beast must have devoured him. What I think he's saying here, which is so beautiful because it also connects a lot of the themes we spoke about in the book of Breshit, is this idea that not only are we focusing on the home now, and it contrasts the hierarchy that we're trying to overthrow in Egypt, but to a certain degree, it also continues to provide a tikkun, some sort of rectification for the degradation of the home that we saw in Savior Breshit. And we spent a lot of time talking about that. So the emphasis on home here and how we want to have everybody come together, we're going to have have a ritual that's that's joined in and and really partaken by all the family, in many ways is this continued overturn, overcoming of a lot of the impulses we saw also earlier in Sefer Breshid. So that Midrash to me really brings that all up because it really highlights exactly what we're trying to prevent through all of these laws. And and that this idea that we won't be our brother's keeper, that we won't save, right? When we know that things are going to be bad, of course, we're going to save our children. Whereas in this Midrash, it portrays Idris as being so intent on keeping their hierarchy and keeping the status quo that they won't even, they won't even save their own children. It's really interesting because I think that that quote and the Midrash um, sheds new light on the Korban Pesach, that it's not only that there's a Korban that needs to be brought for Pesach, and you do it as a family, but actually this is a Korban for the family, right? There's a sense of like kapara in putting the blood on the doorposts, a kind of atonement, and, you know, like before the people of Israel leave Egypt, they're maybe setting aside the past and atoning for it, and now they can actually go out not only as a bunch of families, but as a nation. Wow. Yeah, it's sort of like the 
institution of the family, as you said, achieving atonement for the things that naturally can happen inside the family and then being able from there to, to move on. And it also really connects this idea that we've spoken about also in the past about how the family is the basis for the nation. And there's something about the Korban Pesach, which is the bridge between those two pieces. It's a bridge between the family and the nation. And it's an unbelievable moment how really through through the law itself, we've managed to put this into place. It's unbelievable. And, and I think that in many ways, unlike many laws which over the years become distilled, this this particular law, even though we don't bring the Korban Pesach, the rituals that we've created in place of the Korban Pesach have really kept the spirit of this alive, meaning it we really preserve the family this way. Uh, and, and it's such a central ritual of the family. And I think that that's also a very unique thing that even throughout so many years of Galut, when we, we don't bring a sacrifice in the same way anymore, that we've managed to really preserve the spirit of what was intended all, all these years later. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you know, but in Israel... I don't know how true this is of uh, other uh, diaspora communities, but in Israel, Seder Pesach is one of the practices, one of the Jewish practices that almost all Jews observe, Pesach and Brit Milah. So, you know, it's like over 95% of Israeli Jews still do the Seder Pesach. I think what's interesting as we talk about these two different parts of the law, the law that is the law for the specific time uh, of Bnei Israel and Mitzrayim, and the law that's also on a much broader historical scale, right? We have the Pasuk that says, This day will be unto you a memory. It will be a festival that you're going to celebrate for all generations, which is indeed what, what happens. And what's interesting is what does the Torah emphasize as it's looking forward into the future, right? So Moshe doesn't focus on the present moment. He doesn't say, you know, don't worry, we're going into the desert now, but everything will be okay. Or he doesn't even say, you know, let's focus on the end of this journey, on the beauty of the, of the land of Israel. Instead, he does two things. First of all, he speaks through the language of law, affirms the experience of Yetziat Mitzrayim through a ritual that's going to be observed again and again throughout the generations. And secondly, he doesn't just talk about the ritual, but he talks about how important it is to relay this experience to the next generation through a historical narrative. And then we have three psukim, which emphasize again and again, speaking and explaining to children, right? This is the basis of the questions of the four sons in the Haggadah. Exodus 12, 26, 27 says... And when your children ask you, what do you mean by this right? You shall say, etc., etc. And then let later in chapter 13, in verse 8, uh, you shall explain to your child on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I went free from Egypt. And again in verse 14, and when in time to come your child asks you, saying, what does this mean? You shall say to him. And I think that this emphasis on the historical narrative that parents are relaying to their children from generation to generation really is a kind of explanation for the focus of the parasha on the home. Because the home isn't just a physical fortress uh, which protects Bnei Israel from the destroyer who's attacking the firstborn. 
The home, we have to focus on what happens inside the home. The home is where identity is built. And how is identity built? It's built through memory and through cognizance of a national story. And, you know, there's a lot of research that actually shows that children who are aware of their family narrative, who know where their grandparents came from and how their great-grandparents met, they have a much, much stronger sense of identity. And I think that that's exactly what we're seeing here in this story. I can't help but bring in Rabbi Sachs here. Uh, he has a few pieces that I think are, are really significant. I'll bring you two, two really short quotes. He says, freedom needs three institutions, parenthood, education, and memory. So Jews become the people whose passion was education, whose citadels were schools, and whose heroes were teachers. Okay, another quote from a, a cl- close by in his essay on the parasha, freedom is only possible in the long term if you educate your child in your history. Freedom is not, as so many have thought, a matter of military victories or political structures alone. It involves habits of the heart. Meaning, it really is just comes to buttresses the point that you've made, which is that the matter of education is not uh, happenstance. It's not something that's secondary. It's actually it's actually central to this whole to this whole endeavor. The sacrifice itself or the rituals itself are kind of useless if we don't also talk about them and educate about them. The home itself has to become the center of that of that form of of education, and I think that. It's something I really think about with my own children that, uh, and I, I might have mentioned this before in the podcast, but I'm not great at telling story. Uh, I'm not great at telling stories about myself or about my family. I can say very honestly that I, I inherited that from my father, who also wasn't great at telling his own story, even though it was a fascinating one. And uh, and it's something that it's almost like a Jewish imperative, meaning we we tell our national story and we're obligated to do it once a year. But it's it's much more than that. And whatever our personal style is, uh, there's something here that is being said that you have to inculcate this as a habit of the way you function, because that's the only way that our people are going to take this event and make it be as foundational as it's supposed to be for us for eternity. Right? We all have that imperative to tell our to tell our own story. Exactly. And uh, I think here, obviously, is, is laying the foundations for that idea. I want to just mention a little bit of the afterlife of this idea of the bait as central to the sacrifice of Pesach. Chazal take this idea of the bait and they replace it with the idea of a chavura, meaning a person doesn't have to bring the korban Pesach with their own nuclear family, but you do have to bring the korban Pesach with a group. And there are many, many, many halachot which reflect the idea that all of Am Yisrael are actually divided into chavurot. And you cannot eat the Pesach sacrifice on your own. You have to be part of a chavura, And the chavura has to consume the whole uh, korban in, in one night. So you have to have a specific size of a chavura, which is approximately the size of a large family. So the idea of the chavura is not just an abstract concept, but it's actually a replication of the idea of the family and of the bait. And some of the laws really make this very, very clear. For example, if two chavurot are eating the korban Pesach in one home, then each person has to be very careful to make eye contact only with their own chavura. 
and not with the other chavura that could be, you know, in the same room or, or across the hall, and really kind of retaining the intimacy of eating the uh, Pesach as one group. At the same time, it's also clear that the chavura is representative of all of Am Yisrael. So there are s- s- certain halachot which discuss the Korban Pesach, which really give it a kind of a, a national um, brushstroke. Um, and each chavura is a small representation of eating together with all of Klal Yisrael, basically. So I think that, that you know, if when we look back at the story of Pesach through those eyes, or at least how Chazal understood that idea, it's really bringing together these two levels that you have the national identity, but national identity is built through the building blocks of small groups, of families, of people coming together as a small community, as a Chavua. And in that sense, when the rabbis in the wake of the destruction of the temple created the Pesach Seder, and they joined the narrative uh, relayed to the, four, to the four sons based on the questions that we saw in chapter 12, together with a meal, a festive meal based on the sacrifice also destru- described in chapter 12, they weren't inventing a new ritual de novo, but rather they're drawing together two crucial elements of the home and creating the national story and memory uh, as described in our parasha. This is such an important conversation because we really spent a lot of time thinking about the building blocks of the family in Sefer Breshit. And I've sort of promised that in these episodes, we're going to speak about this transition. And this description and this study of these halachot has really delivered on that. We've really come to understand how we transition out of the family and onto the national scale. You've skipped ahead generations to the way the halacha develops eventually, but those, as you said, those building blocks exist in the description already in this week's Parsha, where we have both the replacement of the Egyptian household for how the household we want to look is going to function, but that ultimately that provides the building blocks for how we'll create community, which is not a community just of our own family, but it's smaller groups of people from within the nation. So it, I think that it's really beautiful that in this week's Parsha, we see that what is the piece that connects the family to the community that is slowly broadening? It's ritual, it's law, uh, it's uh, a sacrifice, which that piece is not something we have today, but we certainly have many rituals and law that are, that are, still, uh, that are still in existence and, and going strong. And ultimately, we're going to see slowly through these parshiyot how law is going to be that which continues to create this transition, that we have our story that we have to keep telling, and we have to keep uh, being conscious about the way we mold the story, which is also something we spoke about two weeks ago. And as we progress, and as I said in my introduction to these episodes where we have first our parshiyot in in the land of Egypt, and then we move to our law-giving parshiot, and then we move to the Mishkan, we're sort of seeing how there is a personal bite in the beginning of the book. We have we receive law, and eventually we're going to make a national home. And so the concept of home is going to continue throughout the entire book of Shemot, but it's going to take on different proportions as our circles of intimacy broaden out of the home and onto the national front. So thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, Yosefa. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, 
a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you.